0: Alright, uh, last week, uh, I, I, this is no shame, it's, 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 just don't lie, um, who was here last week? Alright, keep your hands up. It, it, who wasn't here but you heard the sermon? A couple more. Alright, neither of you. Here's where we were. If I would have heard last week's sermon pretty much at any point while I was a teenager, uh, I would have thought, YOLO. Uh, I'm so glad. Uh, Paul didn't shame uh, the the sexual appetite that he's given humanity. Uh, Paul didn't shame uh, uh, the the appetite for food. In fact, he brings it out and says, hey, this is part of creation. That Adam and Eve uh, had a sexuality before sin entered the world, and that Adam and Eve were told by God, you can eat any of these trees that you want except one. And so maybe you left uh, last week, or maybe after you heard the sermon, you said. Thank God. The Christian faith has room for me to let it rip. Thank God I've been I've been all about this eat, drink, and be merry my whole life, and now Paul just baptizes it in Christian language. I'm excited about this whole thing called the gospel. Well that was last week. We need to listen this week. And maybe you left last week it was total opposite. Maybe you left last week and you thought, hey, I thought restraint had a central place to play within the Christian community, I thought there was some no that was being incorporated into godliness. Maybe a little scared about last week. Well, what's going to happen this week is that those things are put together. That we're we're going to applaud God's good creation because in it is the goodness of God, and then we're also going to talk about that to become godly. It's going to require some training in our heart. Uh, so let's read our passage and we'll pray. Start in verse 6 of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. If you put these things before uh, the brothers, uh, you will be a servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Do we have any Malcolm Gladwell fans in the house? Any Malcolm Gladwell fans? Uh, If you've not heard of him, he's a journalist. He's an author. He's a speaker kind of a guy. Uh, And he also has really great hair. Uh, He's written several New York Times bestsellers, Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, Talking to Strangers. He's also got a great podcast called Revisionist History. One of the books that I've read of his is called Outliers, and it's a book... About successful people and what makes successful people different and he says that most of us we think that successful people are successful because they're talented he says that we pay way too much attention to talent Uh, yesterday uh, Audrey and I are reading Harry Potter uh, every night before we go to bed I've never read it we just finished the second one, Chamber of Secrets, and uh, the deal is every time we finish a book, we, then we get to watch the movie. So uh, we watch the movie, Chamber of Secrets, and um, I remember reading this line, but I forgot about it. Um, there is a line uh, where Dumbledore tells Harry, It is our choices, Harry, that show what we truly are far more than our abilities. And I think Mr. Gladwell would agree. Gladwell goes on to say that we need to pay attention not to people's skill that he says that skill is less latent and more a product of practice he believes in what he calls the 10,000 hour rule which means to be truly good at anything you've got to practice 10,000 hours And he uses lots of examples let me just give you two one that he gives is Bill Gates now we usually think Bill Gates is successful because he's brilliant Now he's got buckets and buckets and buckets and buckets of brilliance, but he also had access to computers when others did not. He had access to computers at a very young age, so by by the time he got to Harvard, he had thousands of hours of programming already under his belt, often overlooked fact. Then he talks about the Beatles. Now the Beatles, they too are plenty talented, but they also have lots of practice. Uh, The Beatles, uh, starting in 1960 through 1964, when they went really mainstream, during those four years, uh, they played in clubs in Germany. And Germany was unusual at the time that Germany uh, asked uh, musicians to play for eight hour sets, seven days a week, and they did this for four years. You add all that up, you get about 10,000 hours. It's a lot of practice. So, sure. Bill Gates is successful because he's brilliant, but he also had a lot of practice. The Beatles are successful because sure they're talented, but they also had a lot of practice. And I think we think that way about godliness. We think about godliness in terms of talent. Either you got it or you don't. Sometimes we think godliness is a result of circumstances. Maybe it's having good parents, it's having quality mentors who serve as good models. They teach you godliness. Maybe you think godliness comes because of a lack of traumatic events. But that's not the way the scriptures talk about godliness. They talk about godliness in a way that is reserved for all believers. It's not just reserved for unique Christians. That we all can experience what the Bible calls godliness. The word godliness is used 15 times in the New Testament. 13 times it's used in the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy is one of the pastoral epistles it's written by Paul to a pastor. And then 2 Timothy, and third was Titus. 13 of those 15 are in there that he really wants these young pastors to develop this character of godliness. And then 9 of those 13 that are used in the pastoral are used here in 1 Timothy. So let me define godliness. It really is at the center of the sermon tonight. It's at the center of our text. And godliness is this gradual, and most of the time, slow, difficult, and inconsistent transformation in a Christian from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. Godliness is, let me say it again, is the gradual and most of the time slow, difficult, and inconsistent transformation in Christians from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. It's a process of living your life based on what moves forward your agenda to living your life based on what moves forward God's agenda. And so how do you become godly now? How do you become godly? Our text is really clear that we become godly through training. It's this 10,000-hour principle. It's not that we're to become experts or impressive for the sake of our reputations like the Beatles or Bill Gates. But it's ten thousand hours in the sense that godliness is not latent; it's not natural. It has to be developed. It has to be cultivated, and it's got to be cultivated via training. You see the word "training" three times. Look at the text. You see the word "training" in verse six. You see it again in verse seven, and you see it a third time in verse eight. And in verse six, the word for training. Is different in the Greek than it is in verse seven and eight. In verse six, it means to nourish. In verse seven, and then again in verse eight, it—the word that's used—is where we get the word gymnasium, and it means to work out. So training is going to involve diet, nourish, and exercise, work out. We all know this, and maybe we know it too well, and we condemn ourselves for it, but. Watching your diet and exercising require this whole thing called discipline. And some of us are great at discipline. Self-control, having a strong will, being committed, they come as natural to some of us as the air that we breathe. But to others of us, discipline is about as foreign as algebra is to me. And both responses, though opposite, are equally opposed to the gospel. See, when discipline is natural, and you begin to exert this kind of effort towards your godliness, what lurks right around the corner is pride and self-righteousness. But when discipline is foreign to you, what hangs around the corner is self-pity and self-condemnation. And here's what both of these extremes focus on. They focus on your performance. And it makes sense. Most of us, we root our identity more readily in our performance than we do in God's grace to us in the gospel. So when you pull up to the gospel table to be nourished, when you step into the gospel gym to be trained, you've got to be firmly aware that God's grace, it's not opposed to effort, But the effort alone is not going to get you where you need to go. So, let's look at both aspects of this training. We'll start out with diet. Paul puts out two tables for us there in those first couple verses. There's two tables that Timothy and the church at Ephesus can eat at. The first table is a table of junk food. You can eat a lot of it, and it's not going to have much of an effect. It's going to make you feel sick going to make you unhealthy. He uses the phrase irrelevant and silly myths. That there's a temptation for us to eat that. You might say, well, I'm not into mythology, Marsh. Now, the Greeks might have been for back there in Ephesus, but that, that, that myth thing, that's an ancient thing. That's not for me in the modern day. And you're right in some ways. But let me remind you that this is just the content of the false teachers. We've been looking at the false teachers ever since we started here in 1 Timothy. And the false teachers, what they were doing is that they were promoting a way to godliness, what they termed godliness. They knew that there was in these people a desire to be different than they were. But they were giving junk food to them to make that transformation come about. And so what's the junk food that we're tempted to eat? It might not be irrelevant, silly mess, but it is silly. And I think they all end in the phrase ism. There's different kind of isms. That we're tempted to eat at to produce change. One is legalism. Legalism just says, just seeks to understand the necessity of obedience. But what it misses is that no one can satisfy all of God's requirements. Maybe the one you eat at is the one we kind of talked about last week. It's this fancy word, asceticism. This is where you deny God's creation in order to focus on the spiritual. Maybe it's mysticism. You've got this insatiable longing to have this emotional experience that will transform your life. Maybe it's activism. Activism just promotes that the evil on the outside is greater than the evil on the inside. And it doesn't leave room to see Christ because you're too busy fighting everyone else's battles and ignoring your own. And there's what I would call biblicism. This is for the theological types. This is for those who want to dedicate their life to the study of the Bible and of Jesus. You can dedicate your life to the study of that truth and not allow that truth to permeate your life, to transform you. Now these are all tables of junk food that you and I can eat at. We can anchor our soul there. But real change is only found when we pull up to the gospel table. And that's where we need to be nourished if we're going to be truly godly. But what does that table look like? Well, think about the metaphor here. We're talking about food. Is there a meal that you could eat, that I could eat, that would prevent you from ever being hungry again? The answer is no. Of course not. Well, it's the same with the gospel. Sure, there there is a point where you're converted. You're changed forever. You're transformed from being an enemy of God to being a son or daughter of God. And you can't ever change back. Your identity's fixed. But even though your identity's fixed as a son or daughter of God, you can never be an enemy of God again. It's easy to slip back into what one author calls a good day, bad day mentality. And when we slip back into this mentality, we feel like God loves us and blesses us on our good days. And on bad days, we feel that God is against us and he looks angrily and unloving at us in judgment. But if you pull up to the gospel table, you're going to see that your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your good days, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And that's the gospel. Here's what Martin Luther says about the gospel. He says, It teaches me not what I ought to do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. That he suffered and he died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it to others. And beat it into our heads continually. In other words, pull up to the gospel table to be nourished all the time. So the question comes where do you feed on this gospel? Well, you feed on it through the means of grace that God's given us. You feed on it here in corporate worship. You feed on it in fellowship with your brothers and sisters during the week. You feed on it during your devotional times when you're alone reading the scripture or you're in prayer. I know it just sounds so elementary. I know it sounds so basic, so one one. But if you want to be nourished in the gospel, if you want to grow in godliness, you got to eat. Diet. Training. Verse 6. Then in verse 7, verse 8, we've got a different word for training. It doesn't mean nourish. It means to work out. And this word's about discipline. This word's about effort. You might say, Marsha, you just pulled the old bait and switch on us. (laughs) You're talking about grace's opposite now. Effort. That's just not fair. Well, I, I get it. But holiness is going to require both effort and grace. See, effort and grace aren't enemies, but they're friends. And they're powerful when they're wed together. See, for many of us, discipline sounds like legalism. But legalism and discipline are very different. Legalism is self-centered. It says, I will do this thing to gain merit with God. And when we live in legalism, we're really just trying to manipulate God. We're really just trying to make him bless us because we've been obedient. And God's not going to have anything of it. That's why he was so rough with Pharisees. But godly discipline, it takes a very different approach than legalism. What godly discipline does, it says, I will do this thing because God loves me. And he tells me only to do things that are good for me. But it gets better. Not only do you seek to obey God out of trusting in his love for you, not only do you seek to obey God because you believe his commandments are good for you, you also obey God because you know that your obedience is him living his life in and through you listen to Paul at 1 Corinthians 15:10. Here's what he says. He says, "But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me." Do you hear that? Do you hear what he said? He said, I worked harder than any of them. That's effort. That's discipline. But he also said, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. That's grace. That's dependence. You see, Jesus is the essence and the wellspring of our godliness. He lived it. And now through his spirit, he is equipping you and empowering you Enabling you to do what you could never do on your own. See, he is the active agent in your obedience. And because he's the active agent in your obedience, when you succeed, you're not going to point to yourself. Because you know it comes from him. And when you fail, when you fall into sin, you're not going to rationalize it. You're not going to fall into self-pity. What you're going to do is you're going to run to Jesus, And he's going to forgive you. You're going to run to Jesus in repentance. And when you repent to Jesus, he's not going to be shocked by your failure. When you run to Jesus in repentance, he's not going to be shocked by your pride when you point to yourself. He's going to say, I died for that. See, he alone is your hope. Real hope isn't rooted in your godliness. Real hope isn't rooted in your maturity. Real hope's not rooted in your biblical or theological knowledge. Real hope isn't rooted in the quality of your character. Real hope's not rooted in your reputation. It's not rooted in your success as a parent, your success in your profession, your success in ministry. Your hope is rooted in Jesus, and he calls you his bride. Think about it. You and I as Christians, we've been chosen from this mass of humanity to live in intimate union with Jesus. And this union is so intimate that he lives his life in you. I don't know about you, but when I see my sin, I think it would be amazing if God would just tolerate it. It would be amazing if I could just show up to the wedding. But it's incomprehensible that Jesus would make you and make me his beloved bride. But that's what he's done. And so when this whole thing of training comes up and you, you're going to need to pull up to that table. Because you need to be reminded that this isn't a good day, bad day mentality. You're going to need to be reminded that God doesn't just tolerate you, that you've not just been invited to the wedding as an as a observer. But you've got to pull up to the gospel table and be reminded that God has called you his beloved bride in Christ. All day long, we're intended to eat at another meal. And we go into training. We're, we're so used to being trained in our culture's view of materialism. We're being trained really to be greedy. We're being trained to make our lives all about ourselves our own self-image our own reputation our own comfort our own ease our own safety our own peace well none of that works that's not where our hope is found we need a different kind of training a training unto godliness but what does this look like in all practicality well let's talk about diet and then we talk about exercise i know this is really really practical some of you are like thank god marsh I mean, you just talk about all these ideas all the time. Just tell me what to do. If I just told you what to do, you wouldn't get the heart of it. You've got to be wooed. And I'm not wooing you. But the gospel is wooing you. But if you've been wooed, and you're like, yes, I need to get to the table. Let me, give you, let me give you a few suggestions. Things have gotten dry for me, a little stagnant. First thing I would tell you is, that, um, again, I'm going to be real practical here. There's a podcast, and it's called Praise As We Go. It's 12 to 16 minutes. It's a meditation. They read a passage to you two different times. They give you some prompts for prayer. They give you some songs, some music, some meditation. Pray as you go. It's been a huge, huge boon to me in my faith over the last year. That's where I've been pulling up the gospel table. Maybe it's this daily prayer project. You guys get it. Hopefully, if you don't get it through your email, we'd be glad to get it. But it goes through the church calendar over the course of 12 months. And right now, we're in Lent. So it builds a liturgy for you of prayers and of scripture readings on a daily basis. It's rich. Those are all individual. Those are all just you and Jesus, really. I mean, maybe you could do it with the, your spouse, your roommate, that'd be fine. But let me give you, there's not just individual ways you pull up to the table. You pull up to the table corporately. Uh, Justin and I were talking, uh, we've got this prayer call uh, that we've had on Wednesdays at 7.30 in the morning. And uh, Justin talked about uh, a pastor at a church he used to work at said, I don't, I I never learned to pray by praying by myself. The only way that I really pray is when I pray with other people. I think he's right. So join us on that corporate prayer call, 730 on Wednesdays. The next one is this worship. I mean, this is about the weirdest time ever to talk about coming to church, right? In the middle of a pandemic. (laughs) But I think what we're going to discover over the course of the next 12 months is that we've been starving to death and that we need the means of God's grace, that we need the word in all ways is presented here in corporate worship. And we need the sacrament. We need to see baptisms. We need to take communion to pull up to this table of the gospel. All right, that's all diet. Let me say this. You can be a terrible person, a terrible Christian, And you can read your Bible every day. You can pray every day. You can come to church every week. You can get on these corporate prayer calls. You can be a terrible, terrible person. That's true. But you cannot be healthy unless these rhythms are established in your life. You just got to eat. Let's talk about exercise. Let's talk about working out, obedience, effort. And you think about this, you tend to frame it up negatively, right? All the things you're not going to do. I mean, we are in the middle of Lent. Things that you're giving up. You're not going to drink too much. You're not going to eat bad foods. You're not going to talk bad about other people. You're not going to cuss. You can get your sexuality in line. That's all fine. There needs to be some no in your growth of godliness. But there's a positive side to godliness that requires effort too. And that's cultivating what Galatians 5 calls the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you look through those, what one, two, three are like, man, I, I, I'm really low on that. <laughs> I'm just the opposite of that. Self-control, I'm compulsive. Gentle, I'm harsh. Faithful, I'm unfaithful. Goodness, I'm bad. Kindness, I'm mean. Patient, I'm impatient. Peace, I'm anxious. Joy, I'm sad. Love, I'm hateful. Whichever those are, why don't you commit to put some grace-induced effort behind it? I think all of us, we, somebody should be able to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, what are you hoping God cultivates in you? Where are you putting some grace-induced effort behind? What are you praying specifically at in your life that God would change you? See, my prayer as your Pastor, is that we would be a church, that we eat at the gospel table, We exercise in the gospel gym, not as ends in themselves, but we do this so that we might love our neighbor, that we might give glory to our Father who is in heaven as he changes us. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. All this just sounds so intimidating. Lord, we're just honest about our, uh, that we don't have much of an appetite for transformation. And Lord, that as we're honest about, uh, we just don't have very little hope that we could be any different. And so, Lord, I pray that you would set upon us uh, proper expectations. That we would see that the the move from self-centeredness to God-centeredness is this slow, difficult, and often inconsistent road. But, Lord, that change is possible. Lord, if you rose from the dead, you can make us different. Lord, do this for your glory, we ask. Amen.